And tonight we're going to begin our study with uh, searching for heaven on earth, <clears throat> and we're going to be in uh, chapter one and two. And our first uh, in the first chapter, I'm going to pick up one through eleven, and David Jeremiah is going to pick up after that. And uh, through uh, eleven, it's the name of it is the fertility of life. Many people today they're searching for <clears throat> the meaning of life, but they're searching not the wrong places. They're trying to find eternal meaning in a temporal world. It's like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. God has made us for eternity, and only His eternal presence in our lives can satisfy our thirst for meaning. A statistical survey of 7,948 students at 48 different colleges by social scientists at John Hopkins University, their preliminary report was part of a two-year study sponsored by the National Institute of Health. These students were asked, what they considered very important to them now. Now these college students, 16% of them said making a lot of money, but surprisingly, 75% of them said that their first goal was to find meaning and purpose in life. In his book, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, secular psychiatrist Carl Jung wrote these penetrating words. He said, about a third of my cases are suffering from no clinically definable neurosis, but from the senselessness and emptiness in their lives. This can be described as the general neurosis of our time. <clears throat> One of the reasons why Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, made it the New York Times <clears throat> bestseller list is the fact that his book zoned in on the basic need within every single man and woman to discover why he is here and what, the meaning, can be <clears throat> and what meaning can be driven from life. Rick says it is the absence of meaning and purpose in the lives of so many people today, and especially the lives of young people, that are causing so much substance abuse and suicide among our younger generation. <clears throat> David Jeremiah talks about a note <clears throat> that he received from a younger person before they took their own life. It was a college student. And I quote, <clears throat> To anyone in this world who cares who I am, why am I living, life has become stupid and purposeless. Nothing makes sense to me anymore. The questions I had when I come to college are still unanswered. And now I'm convinced there are, no, there are not any answers. There can only be pain and guilt and despair in this world. My fear of death and the unknown is less terrifying to me than, <clears throat> than the prospect of unbearable frustration, fertility, hopelessness of my continued existence. End of quote. That's a sad, sad statement. That someone who <clears throat> believes that a death and early death is better than what life can afford them. So we're beginning our study that plunges right smack in the middle of these questions about the meaning of life. And, you, and Solomon, he doesn't, he doesn't publish his final answers to these questions to the end of the book. Now I'm not going to wait till the end of the book to answer these questions the best I can, but what I want you to know is only when you hear and understand the entire book or the entire argument will it serve us completely. The book of Ecclesiastes is the record of a man's search for meaning in life, and it stands unique among the books that it's philosophically presenting a man's quest for meaning. And this man, he is eminently qualified to conduct this investigation. I don't know how much you know about Solomon, but let me, tell you, or let me just mention three things. Basically, he wrote three books. In the early part of his life, he wrote the, uh, the book of Romance, which we call the Song of Solomon. 
at the noon of his life, he wrote the book of Proverbs, <clears throat> which is the book of rules. And at the end of his life, or in the twilight of his life, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which is the book of regrets. And we're going to study the third book. You see, Solomon was at the end of his life when he wrote this book, and he's looking back over his life, and he's making some observations. Solomon was in a very unusual position to make this investigation study. Interestingly, during that time, if you study history, he was in a time when there was actually uh, 40 years of peace. So, <clears throat> so Solomon didn't have to give himself to a military or to a war. He reigned in peace. And this whole time, he could have been spent defending the nation and those around him. He gave an investigation or to investigate the meaning of life. And he had all the time he needed. Furthermore, he had all the money that he needed. There wasn't any investigation that he couldn't afford. And he was the wealthiest man to ever walk on the planet Earth. <clears throat> and if you will look at your Bibles, the last part of the first chapter, you'll notice that <clears throat> he was one of the men in the Bible who had more wisdom than anyone else. If you look down at verse 16, he says, I commune with my heart saying, Look, I have attained a greatness <clears throat> and have gained more wisdom than who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. So Solomon, he was the smartest man that ever lived, and if you're ever going to listen to someone give a, mean, a message on the meaning of life, it might as well be someone that's wise, and, and who is smart, and Solomon was wise and smart. <clears throat> and the Bible says nobody had been, had been that wise before him, and nobody would ever be that wise after him. Now, we'll begin with a bit of understanding about the book. The book is called Ecclesiastes, which kind of means the gathering. <clears throat> and in the verse, it introduces Solomon as the preacher. And in the Old Testament language, that's a coalette <clears throat> that he's, he's, he's a searcher, if you will. He's the guy who's searching for answers and investigation. Solomon is, is he's looking back over his life to see the actions of all the people. What makes them tick and what, what they do to try to find meaning in life. <clears throat> Unlike many books, Solomon against his book was conclusion, and that almost seems self defeating, telling the conclusion first, but it starts at the beginning, and he gives us the answer right here at the very beginning. Look at verse 2. He says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What a depressing thought. The word vanity is used in the book 38 times, and it's not what you think it is. It's not the vanity like, you think, like we think of it today. This is not what happens when some people, when they look in the mirror and they become vain. <clears throat> I read about a woman that went to her pastor, and she said, Pastor, I must confess to you, I, I have a, a, a terrible sin that I'm suffering from. I'm suffering from the sin of vanity. Before I go to work every morning... I stare in the middle of my mirror at myself at least 30 minutes and I admire my face. The preacher said, My dear lady, it is not the sin of vanity you're suffering from. It's the sin of imagination. <laughs> <clears throat> the vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes is not the pride of faith. The word vanity means emptiness. It means fertility. It means without meaning. It's a word sometimes referred to as a vapor or disappears. And what Solomon's saying at the front end of his investigation is after my conclusion and after my investigations, my survey, what I've discovered 
that life under the sun does not make sense. <clears throat> he puts the truth in the strongest possible language. Vanity of vanities. And the Hebrews had a way of writing, and when they doubled a word, that meant it was really, really intense. This is not just emptiness. This is serious emptiness. This is serious vanity. So we asked the question at the top of the chapter, what is the profit for all a man does? The word profit here is a word which means what is left over. What is left over after a man's works? What he is saying must be understood. Now listen carefully, because if you don't get this, you'll misunderstand the rest of the book. But this book is a very true representation of a man's search for meaning. And watch this now, as if there was no God at all in the picture. And the way he conveys it is a little phrase that is used 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. Solomon now looking back at his life is going to tell what life is all about under the sun. Because if, if he includes <clears throat> what is over the sun, he includes God in the picture. And he doesn't include God in this investigation. He tells us what he observed about life under the sun. And most of you know that that's how most people are today. When they're trying to figure out what life is about, they're trying to figure out what life is about under the sun. God is not, about, about, God is not a part of the question. He's not a part of the equation. But Solomon's going to take us down some roads that help us realize, without having to go through the agony of the journey, what happens when we reason through life without God. He begins the first three verses, verses 4 through 7, with a little insight on the fertility of life. And there's four things that he teaches us here. Look at verse 4, if you will. One generation passes and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. And it's almost as if Solomon is, has got a newspaper open and he's reading the, the birth records on one hand and he's reading obituaries on the other. And he's saying, life is just the same. One generation comes and another generation goes. One man is born, one man is dying. Life goes from the beginning, it goes to the end, and it just keeps repeating itself. The earth never changes, but man keeps passing one after another after another. Nature's permanent. But Solomon says life is transit, and he touches on something in his mind throughout the whole study. It's a study of death. You know, death is something that we tend really not to want to talk about. And you say, well... You invite somebody to church say, hey, we come to church with me. Sammy's going to preach on death for the next four Sundays. Well, by the third Sunday, nobody's here. And he reasons that course life and says, there's, I'm sorry. But Saul, you have to understand he's at the end of his life. And, and, you know, he don't have much time left, so death is on his mind. And he reasons about the course of life and he says there's some fertility in it. I read this quote, uh, it was written by Rabbi Harold Kushner. He's a, he's a famous Jewish writer. And he tells in the book about a story about a man who came to see him for some counseling. And Rabbi Kushner said, after we talked for a few moments about common things, he started telling about why he came to see him. And he told his story. He said, two weeks ago from the first time in my life, I went to a funeral of a man my own age. I didn't know him well, but we worked together. We talked to each other from time to time, and our kids are about the same age. 
He died suddenly over the weekend, and a bunch of us went to the funeral, each of us thinking it could have well just as easily been me. That was, <clears throat> that was two weeks ago, and they'd already replaced him at the office. I hear his wife is moving out of state to live with her parents. Two weeks ago, he was working 50 feet away from me, and now it's like he never existed. It's like he was a rock falling in a pool of water. The water is the same as it was before, but the rock isn't there anymore. Rabbi, I've hardly slept at all since then. I can't stop thinking that that could have well been me. A few days later, I'll be forgotten as if I never lived. Shouldn't a man's life be more than that? More than that? But that is, is that the question that so many people are asking today? <clears throat> Isn't there more to life than the same old daily cycle? Work, sleep, work, sleep, and then followed by death. Solomon is saying, if I look at life with no God in it, it just seems so futile. In the course of life, turning over and over, there's no meaning to it. He goes on to show us that, that nature teaches us this lesson. He goes from the course of life to the circle of the sun. Notice in verse 5, the sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place the word arose. Just as, <clears throat> as modern astronomers talk about the sun rising and setting, Solomon did, <clears throat> said the sun rises in the east, and he actually uses the word here, pants. It pants around across the horizon and sets in the west. And then while we're sleeping, it pants around the dark side of the earth, and there it is again in the morning. It's then as it repeats itself again and again. Every day since the creation of the world, the sun comes up the same. It rises, it sets, and it rises, and it sets. And then he adds to it the circus of the wind in verse 6. The wind goes toward the south, and it turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuits. And if you think about it, that's truly remarkable a statement for an Old Testament book because this was long before the discovery of the great wind circuits in the global circulation of the atmosphere. There's no way that could have been known as we know it today. They didn't have James Fan or satellite TV showing these wind circuits. And so you could... <clears throat> well, where was that? So he wrote this long before the people knew about this, and then he uses it as an illustration how the world just mechanically going on, and, uh, and man seems apart from it all. And then if you go to D here, um, he talks about the cycle of water. If you'll notice in verse 7, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rain rivers come, they will turn again. And, and those of you that studied science here, <clears throat> you know he's describing the hydraulic cycle. And he's telling us that just like the wind and just like the sun and just like generations of life, he's saying that things are just continuing to be the same, that they don't change, that, that there's a, a mechanical monotony to the way the world functions. There's fertility to life. And that, and that if you deserve it without God in the picture, you know, if you sit there, have you ever had these thoughts? Even those of us that are Christians... If we allow ourselves to get caught up in the thinking of the world, we really do. We feel so insignificant. That we begin by thinking of things, why does it even matter? Why am I here until we remember God? 
So he moves from the fertility of life to the frustrations of life in verses 8. He says, nothing is fulfilling. Verse 8 says, all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor, <clears throat> nor is the ear filled with hearing. Life is boring. Some of you say, well, my life's not boring. What is, what he's, he's reasoning about life without God. And he speaks of the restlessness that we have in our hearts as men and women today. I couldn't help but to think about as I studied this, again, understand better. Here are the basis of our entertainment industry that which we live in today. Why do people sit on their chair at night and they watch entertainment? I don't even remember the name. E, one of them entertainment shows. Um, where they tell about all the secrets of people in Hollywood that nobody's heard before, but none of it satisfies the ear, none of it satisfies the eye. A person who does not know God in their life, they're trying to find meaning and just goes from one thing to the next, trying to find something that will fill the emptiness in their lives. That's what Solomon's saying here. He's saying that nothing's fulfilling, and this speaks to the restlessness of the men and women in our world today. Acts 17.21 tells us, <clears throat> this is what the Bible says about a people who lived in Athens, and see if this doesn't register with you. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who, were, who have spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They were all in a novelty. Whatever you can do that nobody else has done. J. Vernon McGee <clears throat> used to say, if it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new. And I don't think he got that from the Bible, but he's right. Psalm is saying there is, there is no real sense of satisfaction in whatever we do. This is even true as us Christians. If we buy a computer, two weeks later there's something new that replaces it. <clears throat> if, you, if you get a new flat screen, well, your neighbor's got a new plasma, and then ours ain't so new anymore. You get a, you got a house. You want a bigger house. You got a nice car. You want a nicer car. Isn't that how it works? And as much as we not, as we do as believers, to focus on the things that are above, we can fall into this trap. But a person who does not have God, that's all they have. That's all they have is try to fill it with what the eye can see or what they can hear or this new car, house, whatever. And then Solomon, he ends the discussion here with the fact that, that nothing is fresh. Look at verses 9, <clears throat> 9 through 11. That which has been done is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, say this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by who will come after. What did he say? There is nothing new under the sun. Well, Jason, that just don't resonate with me. There are so many things that are new. You mentioned a few of them. Someone's turning out something new every day. But think about it. There's nothing new being created. Almighty God created it in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. And when we think we're so smart to invent something... We're just taking what God had already created it, and we're rearranging it for a need that we have. 
Thomas Addison once said that his inventions were applying the secrets of nature for the happiness of mankind. We created nothing new, for nothing is new under the sun. God created it, and God is over the sun. <clears throat> Rigor Kepling expressed the sentiments of Solomon in a poem he wrote. He said, The craft we call modern and the crimes we all call new, John Bunyan had them typed and filed in 1682. There's not anything new. We think everything else is new, but we're really not. It's been done before in a different way by somebody in the past, and whatever we do now will be done in the future. And what Solomon is saying, now listen to me, if you look at life without God, nothing satisfies, nothing new. There's fertility in the world. And you say at one time Solomon, <clears throat> in his life, he knew the meaning of God. When he started out, he was a man that walked with God. He was a man who prayed for God's gift to give him wisdom. And God gave him hearing, and he gave him understanding, and Solomon walked with God, and he knew the meaning. But the Bible tells us when he grew old, he became prosperous, he gathered great riches among him, and began to walk away from God, and he forsook God, and he married foreign wives. And the Scripture says he contaminated his life with visions of the world, and he got away from God in his end days. And I believe that Solomon died a frustrated, delusional, discouraged old man. Solomon said, somebody said that Solomon is like an European fable about a spider. The spider descended one day by a single thread by the barn's lofty rafters, and it had landed by a corner of a window and built its web. The corner of the barn was very busy, and soon the spider waxed fat and prosperous. But one day he was looking at the web, and he noticed a strand that reached up to the loft above. And he had forgotten its significance, and thinking it was a stray thread, he snapped it, and his whole world fell apart. Solomon once had that connection in his earlier life, but he had forsaken God of his youth, and he lost the meaning of life. And he comes to terms with this at the end of his life, and he realizes without God doesn't have any. <coughs> realizes without God that life doesn't have any meaning. So he summarizes the central question in his book in chapter six. <coughs> Look at verse twelve. For who knows what is good for a man all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? And I can tell you tonight that, I, <clears throat> that there is only one that can tell you the meaning of life, and I'm not that one. But I'm going to give you the key to this book as we close our Bibles. If you'll look in the third chapter, look at verse 11, and you'll see the key. Here's what Solomon says. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And watch this. And he puts eternity in their hearts. And here's what that means. That means when God created us, each and every one of us, no matter who we are, he all made us in this respect. We were built as human beings with a place in our hearts for God. And he created eternity in our hearts. He created the hole in your heart. He created the hole in my heart. And that hole cannot be filled with anything else except for God. And if we try to put anything else in the place but God Almighty, we will be frustrated and we'll feel the fertility that Solomon writes about in the first chapter. There cannot be meaning to life without God in our hearts. God has not made us for the world. He's made us for the next world. 
And he put eternity in our hearts, and he wants to fill, it, <clears throat> fill that with himself if we allow him to do it. If you try to make it work under the sun, you will fail. Life does not work that way. God intends life to work <clears throat> unless he's in the picture. Let me say it this way. There is no meaning to life under the sun, S-U-N. But meaning in life is found in the sun, S-O-N. First John 5.12 tells us, He that hath the sun hath life. See, we're right at 5.30 now. I'll tell you what, let's break for... Come back at 5.35, and we'll pick up from there. all of his wealth, all of his wisdom to sort out what life is all about. This book was written in the closing years of Solomon's life as he looked back over his shoulder and evaluated the things that he tried to experience in order to find meaning in his life. It begins as this great man of wisdom is searching for the meaning of life in a number of areas. Remember now, there are three key words in this book. First of all, the word vanity, which occurs many times throughout the book, which means emptiness or without meaning. Secondly, under the sun, the phrase which means this is the context in which Solomon is doing his research. He's not researching life with God in the picture. He's looking at life as if God does not exist. And the third word is the word prophet, which means what is left over. Solomon is going to research these various areas of life and find out what is left over. The experiences of life under the sun began in the first chapter and the 12th verse as Solomon determines to search for meaning in wisdom. Will you follow as I read from my Bible beginning at the 12th verse of the first chapter? I, the preacher, or Solomon, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know the madness and folly, and I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Solomon begins by saying that he tried to find meaning in life through his wisdom and through his knowledge and through his great intellectual ability. His evaluation as he goes through this process is that education, as we would call it today, is not the ultimate answer to meaning in life. 
A few years ago, in the monthly letter that Dr. James Dobson sends out to his listeners, he told the story of a 17-year-old girl named Karen Cheng. She lived in Fremont, California, and she achieved a perfect score on both sections of the SAT tests. She also got a perfect 8,000 on the Tufts University of California Acceptance Index. Never in history had anyone accomplished this intellectual feat, which is almost staggering to contemplate. Karen was a straight-A student at Mission San Jose High School and described herself as a typical teenager, <laughs> one who munches on junk food and talks for hours on the telephone with her friends, and she claimed to be a procrastinator who didn't do her homework until the last minute. Karen's teachers at Mission High told a different story. They called her Wonder Woman because of her unquenchable thirst for knowledge and her uncanny ability to retain whatever she read. So the world was blessed with the brilliant, one-of-a-kind young woman who seemed likely to succeed in anything she decided to do. But the national news story about Karen included a brief but significant interchange with a reporter. When he asked her, what is the meaning of life? She replied, I have no idea. I would like to know myself. She was brilliant. She was intellectual. She was educated but she did not know the meaning of life. The late philosopher and author, Dr. Francis Schaeffer said, the damnation of this generation is that it doesn't know that it has any meaning at all. T.S. Eliot in Choruses from the Rock said, all our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. And an old proverb says, a wise man is never happy. Listen to Solomon's conclusion about his search for meaning in education, wisdom, and knowledge. He says, I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. All of us have met, perhaps even know, perhaps even are, people with a great deal of education. If education could bring meaning, the happiest people in the world would be PhDs. I know enough of them to tell you that ain't so. You cannot find meaning simply through education. And one of the things that happens in our secular culture is we believe that we can change the world through education. We just create smarter people who know how to do evil in a more sophisticated way. And we don't have meaning at all. Solomon sought for meaning in wisdom. And then as we began the second chapter, he continued his search for meaning in wild living. This sounds like a report out of one of our contemporary newspapers. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, he files this report. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their life. Now notice, he's searching for meaning, first of all, in wisdom, and he says it's like grasping the wind. Then he decides to try to find out whether he can find meaning through wild life, through wild living. And he begins, first of all, with amusement. One writer has said that there was no time in Israel's history which was richer in possibilities for various pleasures and no person in a better position to make the most of them than was Solomon. 
He tried everything. His search took him, first of all, to amusement. The scripture says that he tried mirth and he tried pleasure and he tried laughter and he tried madness. <laughs> and he found out that it didn't bring him happiness. Laughter only breaks the monotony of crying and pleasure is only an intermission to pain. Solomon was trying to be happy and he was not. In fact, in one of the 3,000 Proverbs that he wrote that's recorded for us in the book of Proverbs, he said it this way, Proverbs 14, 13, even in laughter the heart may sorrow and the end of mirth may be grief. He tried amusement. You can almost visualize the palace during the time Solomon was going through this experiment. It was like, it was like one of the casinos in Las Vegas, filled with lights and all kinds of excitement and wine and women everywhere. He tried his best to amuse himself and demeaning, and he found out that it didn't work. And how many have we known like that in our culture? And perhaps you've been down that road and could testify today, I did it all. I experienced everything, and it left me with an emptiness in my heart. He not only tried amusement, but he tried alcohol. Notice in verse 3, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom. Now, please understand, Solomon did not become an alcoholic. He, he wasn't even drunk, apparently. He says he was able to keep his heart with wisdom. He kept his senses about him so that he could record his observation on the effect of wine taking him toward meaning in life. Wine became a socially acceptable way to loosen up and enjoy people in his conversation. But wine did not bring any sense of profit into Solomon's life, and it left him empty. Isn't it interesting how many people try to find through substance abuse some meaning in life? Solomon was one man who had all of the resources and all of the opportunity and all of the power to experience every possible answer to life and not ever say, if I had only had a little bit more, I could have tried that. He tried it all. And he discovered in his attempt to find meaning in wild living that this too was vanity and this too was the chasing of the wind. Wisdom didn't do it. Wild living didn't do it. So he tried work. He became convinced that perhaps through his accomplishments, through his projects, he might find some meaning in life. And many of us as men in this organization we call Shadow Mountain perhaps have struggled with this particular avenue of meaning in life. Listen to what Solomon says in verses 4 through 6 of the second chapter. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. If you go through that text, you will find that he says, my or myself, some six times. Solomon says, I went out and did this stuff for me. I built all of these things. I engaged in all of these architectural projects. I had pools, ponds, and parks, and they didn't really do anything for me. You see, there is no real lasting meaning in projects. Ecclesiastes says that what seeking after ulti ultimate meaning is like is to look at these projects as if they are the end all in life. There is nothing wrong with them. They have a wonderful purpose as long as we don't make them the ultimate goal in our life. If we do that, we will be disappointed. You can never build enough buildings. You cannot build them big enough or more beautiful enough 
to fulfill the longing of your soul because you were created in such a way that that longing can only be filled through God himself. Ernest Hemingway, many of you know, was born in 1899. He was the epitome of the 20th century man. At age 25, he sipped champagne in Paris and hunted grizzly bears in America's Northwest. At the age of 61, after having it all, wine, women, song, a distinguished literary career, Sunday afternoon bullfights in Spain, Hemingway chose to end his life by committing suicide, leaving a note that said, life is just one damn thing after another. That was his analogy of life. You see, the problem with trying to find life through accomplishment is we can look at history and find people who have accomplished far more than we could ever attempt, and they have given testimony that it leaves them with an ache in their heart. Ecclesiastes says that what seeking after ultimate meaning through pleasure is like is disappointment. Seeking meaning through work leaves us empty. Derek Kidner, one of the men who has written prolifically on the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, says that what spoils the pleasures of life for us is our hunger to get out of them more than they can ever deliver. If you're looking at your work for pleasure, you will discover that your work will never, ever bring that joy to your life. Well, he searched for meaning in wisdom. He searched for meaning in wild living. He searched for meaning in work. Notice now verses 7 through 10, he searches for meaning in wealth. Reading from the Bible, it says, I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor which I had toiled, and indeed it was all vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Now, I wish there was some way, men and women, that I could express to you how rich Solomon was. I do not know anybody to compare him to. And all I can do is uh, give you a little bit of taste of what his life was like financially. In 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 14, we read these words. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. A gold scholar evaluates that gold's value at more than $25 million, which was an incredible sum in the days of Solomon, is not a paltry number in our day today. If you had visited Solomon's kingdom during the days of his glory, you would have seen gold everywhere. It's referred to as the golden age, partly for that reason. Uh, another passage in the book of Kings tells us that all King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Now watch this. Not one was silver, for silver was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. I'm not going to have any of that crummy old silver around his palace, man. He was into gold. 
If you had walked into the palace of Solomon in his day of, of, of wealth, you would have seen precious stones and spices from Arabia, almond and sandalwood trees from India, ivory from India and Africa, cedarwood from Lebanon. The temple that he built would have taken away your breath. It had gold everywhere, stairways beautifully ornamented. There was an endless array of servants in gorgeous clothes and rich cuisine and costly uniforms and expensive horses. It was a capital worthy of a king whose wisdom and splendor eclipsed all the rulers of the world. And in this passage, he says, he became great and excelled more than all who went before him in Jerusalem. And he continued to have his wisdom. And then he filed this report. I had it all, and it wasn't enough. I had it all, and it didn't bring meaning and joy to my life. A writer in the Wall Street Journal called money an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven, and a universal provider of everything except happiness. Johnny Carson once said, the only value of money is so you don't have to worry about being poor. <laughs> Power, possessions, position, and prestige cannot make you happy. So let's just pause for a moment, take a deep breath. The experiences of Solomon are as follows. He sought, he sought for meaning in wisdom, in wild living, in work, and in wealth, and he found that none of them brought happiness to his life. Notice now, as we come to the 11th verse in the second chapter, the evaluation of life under the sun. And Solomon makes three evaluations of what he has discovered in his experiment. And this gets better as we go along, so just hang with me now so you can see this. First of all, in verses 11 and 12, Solomon files this report. He says, man's work does not satisfy him. Notice what he says. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who succeeds the king? Hmm. He said, I... I just need you to know that what I've learned from all of these experiments is that they don't really fill the void in my life. They don't satisfy me. Man's work does not satisfy. If you try to find satisfaction through your pleasures, through your work, through your wealth, through your wisdom, you will end up empty because you were not created to find ultimate satisfaction through those avenues. You see, we're not just random creatures here sorting this all out. We're creatures of Almighty God who has put us together in such a way that there's only one avenue that will bring us true joy and fulfillment, and that avenue leads us to Almighty God. And Solomon says, hear me now. I've done all of these things. I've spared no expense, and I want to tell you that man's work does not satisfy him. Now, secondly, he makes an astounding statement. Remember, this is wisdom under the sun. He says, man's work does not separate him. Read with me verses 13 through 16 and see if you can pick up his argument. Then I saw wisdom excels folly. All light excels darkness. We all agree with that. Wisdom's better than folly. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. We believe that. I myself perceived, now watch this, that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it happens to me. 
And why was I then more wise than I said in my heart, this is also vanity? For there is no more remembrance of the wise man than of the fool. Since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come, and how does a wise man die? He dies just like the fool. If all you see about life is life under the sun, is Solomon not telling the truth? Do you know what? <laughs> I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul it. Have you? <laughs> you can't take it with you, so when you come to the grave, everybody comes the same way. Naked we came into the world, and naked we go out of the world in terms of whatever we may have. Solomon says, I watched, and I saw these people that were wise, and I saw the people who were foolish. And you could see the difference, but when it comes to the end, you don't separate them out at all. If all there is is this life and then death, there's no difference between the wise and the foolish when the ultimate appointment comes. You see his argument? He's saying, I've watched this now, and I want to observe with you that if there isn't anything then that which is under the sun, then the wise and the foolish are the same, and it doesn't make any difference. Notice the third conclusion. Man's work does not satisfy him. Man's work does not separate him. And here's one that is really kind of bittersweet if you happen to be over 50. Man's work does not succeed him. Verses 18 through 23, now read what he says. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. But he's going to rule over all my labor in which I told, in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had told under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all of his labor, for the striving is of heart with which he has toiled under the sun? All his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Whew, man, I, have to, I tell you what, living in this book, especially the first chapters, takes a man of great stature and, and strength and, and resolve because I have to get through all of this to get to the good news. And I know you're all sitting there thinking, could we take a break? Could we go get a cup of coffee? Could we shut this thing down for a little bit until we can sort all this out? Just hang there with me now. Solomon is saying something that all of us have thought at one time or another, whether we like to admit it. Build what you want. Save what you might. Have it all in stocks and bonds, in the bank, in real estate, wherever you might put it. But one of these days, you won't be able to manage it anymore, and you have no idea what the person who comes after you is going to do with it. If you think ultimate eternal meaning is in the accomplishments of life just stop and think about it for a moment let me tell you something if you want an experience for ecclesiastes go to your college homecoming anniversary i looked around and, and i told donna she was the most wonderful princess i'd ever seen she looked so great i saw some of her friends my goodness if they were in my class i can't understand it you know it's just i can't understand how a person could be I don't want to go down that road, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Going to a reunion and watching what happens to people over the years can be depressing. Can I get a witness? Yeah. Of course, we always look at them and we think we're not like that. They're probably looking at us saying the same thing. I used to know him when he was young or when he didn't have gray hair or whatever. The processing of life as we view it from our little venue 
distorts life until we step back and get a perspective. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes does. It gives us a perspective to see that if all we are pinning our hopes on is what we can touch and feel and see and hear, we will ultimately feel a sense of despair along the way. And even as believers who know better, if we are not careful, we allow ourselves to slip back into that way of evaluating life. And we find ourselves discouraged and disappointed. And then we wonder what it's all about. Well, you know, even though you know the God who is over the sun, if you are not careful, you can live life under the sun. You know that? That's why Paul tells us in Colossians, set your affection on things that are above, not on things that are below. We have to learn how to put life together, not with God in a separate room, but with God right in the center of all that we do. And that is Solomon's conclusion as we come to the end of this chapter. We've looked at the evaluation of life under the sun, and I want you to see with me now the enjoyment of life under the sun, verses 24 to 26. When Solomon gets to the end of this little summary report, he pauses for a moment and he asks, and make some important observations. And here, listen to me carefully because this brings it all together. First perspective is that true enjoyment is a gift from God. True enjoyment is a gift from God. Read with me verses 24 and 25. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? Verse 25 really should be translated, for who can eat or who can have enjoyment without God? That's the way the, the text really reads. Now, what is he saying? Eight times in the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to see this as we go through the book. Over and over again, you're going to see this little phrase that we just read. Nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy his labor. Listen to me, class. If we have such a morbid view of life under the sun, why don't we all just check out? You know, that's not, the, that's not the message of Ecclesiastes. The message of Ecclesiastes is all of the life that we live is lived under the sun until we go to heaven. Isn't that true? So understand what life is all about. Get your head straight. Get your perspective right and realize that everything we have, God has given to us and enjoy what God has given to you in this life with all of your heart. That's what Solomon is saying. He's not saying be morbid. Don't be sitting around thinking about dying and all that. That's not what this book is about. This book is about learning to know joy, but it is a reminder to us that if you want the real thing, true joy, you will never have it unless you understand that it's a gift from God and you put God in the picture and then everything else starts to make sense. You can enjoy the things that God has given you. You can enjoy your good house. You can enjoy the wonderful things that God has provided for you because you know they're not the ultimate. They're just a little down payment on the ultimate joy that God has prepared for all of us when we spend eternity with him. And true joy comes into our hearts when we realize that it is a gift from God and God is involved. Solomon once and for all destroys the idea that God in heaven is some sort of cosmic killjoy who deprives his creatures of enjoying life. God put us on this earth to enjoy. Amen? Amen? Amen. Some of you don't feel like, you know, if I looked at your faces this morning, you're still back in verse 1. You know, you need to get up here in this verse. Verses all through this chapter are a setting for you to understand. Don't seek it over there or you'll miss it. 
but seek it from God and you get God and everything else that goes with it. Do you see what I'm saying? That's the answer. God gives joy to those who follow him, to those who center their lives upon him. He brings a personal, intimate joy that supersedes anything you'll ever find in the world. And watch this. When we have the joy that God brings, we learn how to enjoy the other things that life has to offer. Some of you people are really, uh, some of you people are rich. Some of you people have a lot of money, have a lot of things. I rejoice with you in all that God has given you, and I only caution you in this respect, make sure you never take God out of your portfolio. <laughs> Put him in the middle, make sure he's there. And you know what I've taught people over the years as, as a pastor, and I've learned this in my own life, hold everything that you have with an open hand. Because when you do that, let me tell you two good things. Number one, if you hold it with an open hand, God can take out of your hand anything that he wants, amen? But he can also put in your hand anything he wants. If you close your hand on what you've got, nobody else might get it, but you shut God off from giving you anything else. Now, is that a motivation or what? Keep your hand open toward God. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy. Listen to this. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Now watch this. Who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Please hear me. Ecclesiastes is not a morbid book. Ecclesiastes is an exciting book. Ecclesiastes gives us permission to enjoy the life that God has created for us as long as we see God as the giver and he's in the center of life. And then the translation of verse 25 is, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Without God, you'll not ever experience everything. You see, here's the problem with pleasure. You know what the problem with finding pleasure as the goal of life is? And you will all see this, and you'll know this immediately. You'll, you'll sense this. If you're going to find meaning in pleasure in life, you have to increase the intensity of the activity to produce the same effect. Because the more you go, for instance, if you find pleasure in drinking, you have to continue to increase the amount of alcohol you consume to get the same buzz. If you're on drugs, you have to go to the next level. You might start on marijuana, then you go to heroin, then you go to crack cocaine or whatever it is. There's a hierarchy in pleasure. You see what I'm saying? And the more you seek pleasure, the more you have to ask from pleasure. And the beauty of God is, is that's no problem with God because the more you know him, the better he is. Amen? The more intimately you get involved with him, the more he satisfies. You can never, ever worry about the intensity of your pleasure from Almighty God waning because the, the longer you know him, the sweeter he grows. And so when you find pleasure in God, you're never off here wondering what to do next. You are involved with the ultimate. Finally, Solomon says, true enlightenment is a gift from God. Let me cover this quickly. He says in verse 26, for God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Did you know what? God not only gives us good things to enjoy, he gives us the enlightenment to know how to enjoy them. Isn't that true? He gives us the things that we enjoy. You know, I, I know some people, let me just give you an illustration. I know some people that have a beautiful house. And because God's not in their perspective, they just, they hoard that house. They never use it. They just hoard it. I know some other people that have a beautiful house. All they do is sit around thinking about how they can use this house for the glory of God. 
having people in and using it to help missionaries, whatever they do. You see what I'm talking about? When God's in the picture, he gives you the enlightenment to know, and they find real joy in the things that God allows. An interesting part of this last verse, he says, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. And he says, but to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting so that he can give it to the man who is good before God. Now, you can either be the recipient or you can be, you can be the guy out there work, working and gathering. I don't know that this is always true as, as my observation, but it is true. A lot of times you know that, don't you? People out there in the world are working like crazy and they're getting all this stuff and all of a sudden you look over and it's on, the, on this side of the ledger. Somebody asked me one time, Pastor Jeremiah, if I, uh, if I won the lottery, should I give it to God? Now that's a good question, isn't it? If I won the lottery, should I give some of it to God? Well, first of all, you shouldn't be playing the lottery, so that, let me just solve that. <laughs> now, let me just tell you that. Now, some of you probably got some tickets in your pocket right now, and they're, they're just burning a hole right in your pocket. But well, let me answer the question. By all means, if you win the lottery, give all of it to God if you can. The devil's had it long enough. We might as well give it back to God. Amen? <laughs> and that would be a perfect illustration of how people who do not follow God's principles get stuff that ends up in God's pocket. All I want you to understand from this lesson today is there's a way that you can have joy and fulfillment in your life. I want you to join with me in reading a verse of Scripture, just a little passage from the book of Isaiah before we close today. Could we do this? Let's all stand up, shall we? So let's read it out loud together. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? and your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. That's a great invitation, isn't it? Amen.